So Jade Visions was composed by the bassist Scott LaFaro. His first name was actually Rocco, but his, his middle name was Scott, and he went by Scott. Um, he, he lived a short life. He was only 25 years old when he died in a car accident on July 6, 1961. And uh, if you talk to bass players that have really studied the history of bass, they put him very high on the list even though he had a very short life. I mean, he was really on the jazz scene in his late teens. And when you think of that he died at age 25, when you think of, when you look at the recordings on which he performed and his compositions, um, you would think that he lived a long life. Um, and who knows what would have happened had he lived a long life. I mean, he was born in 1936. He could easily still be around. Um, but what he did with his time was amazing. Um, most people know him best from his work with Bill Evans. And it was with Bill Evans that he uh, was performing most regularly at the time he died. He also performed with a lot of other people. Um, the composition I chose uh, is Jade Visions. I like about this piece, and it, it appears on, um, there were two Bill Evans Trio albums that came out of a gig um, at July on July 25th, 1961, at the Village Vanguard. And there's that album, uh, there's the album Sunday at the Village Vanguard, and the other is Waltz for Debbie. Um, and so there are live recordings that were then pressed uh, after the death of Scott. So Jade Visions was a composition of Scott. A lot of people think that it might be a Bill Evans composition because it sounds so Bill Evans-like. Uh, and I think that's part of the magic of those of that trio is how they were like three heads, one brain in terms of how they functioned. And, and the best groups in all genres of improvisational music, whether it be, you know, rock and roll or, or, you know, bluegrass or whatever, is when you assemble a group of players that kind of function like um, one mind, um, several bodies. And, and so Scott's compositional style, if you closed your eyes and you didn't know anything about Scott and you knew something about Bill Evans and you heard the tune, you go, oh, wow, that's a great Bill Evans tune. Um, so, so I, I really like this era of Bill Evans trio work. I really like Scott's bass work. What's really interesting about this composition is that it's in three, four time, but it's not a mid tempo waltz that you would, you wouldn't dance to this tune as a waltz. It's very much a ballad, but it's in three and the rhythmic, uh, foundation of it is very unusual for a tune that's in three. A couple other compositional elements that are very nerdy, but very cool, are that all of the phrases are three bar phrases. 
And that is very unusual in music to have three bar phrases. There usually are even numbers. They're four, eight, 12, 16, 24, 48, something like that, but not three. And so when you're soloing over this tune, you really have to keep your head on because if you're used to soloing in four bar phrases, this tune will mess with your brain really fast, even though it's going really slow. The last thing about it is from a compositional standpoint is it starts off very ordinary harmonically. It starts with a, a C major seventh chord and an A minor seventh chord and A minor seventh chord is a relative minor C major seventh chord. So they're very compatible. It's very conventional. He moves from that into major seventh sharp 11 chords, which are very pleasing, but they're a little more densely constructed. And then he goes to minor, minor major seventh chords, which are probably the most dissonant of the seventh chords. And so it has a slow evolution of being kind of ordinary, being kind of deep, and then being deeper, and then you start back over. So all these compositional elements make this a challenging tune to play, but a really interesting tune to play. And it tends to grab audiences because it's so peaceful, but it's very dense. Let's talk about this uh, Chick Corea uh, tune on the absolutely fantastic Return to Forever album. And beautiful saxophone playing by a fellow that uh, people might not be familiar with, too. Yeah, Joe Farrell. Um, he also died relatively young. I, I Not as young as LaFaro, but I think he might have been 50 or so when he died. Um, he shows up on a lot of kind of rock and pop recordings. Like if you've ever heard the song She's Gone by Holland Oates, he plays the sax solo. So, you know, he farmed out like a lot of folks, just like, you know, Phil Woods playing the solo on, on the Billy, Cho, Billy Joel tune, um, Just the Way You Are. Yeah. So jazzers show up that way. But I, my favorite of his work is on these two albums by Chick Rhea. One's called Return to Forever. The other's called Light as a Feather. It was the first edition of the Return to Forever band. And matter of fact, the first recording, the band wasn't even named. It was just Chick Corea with an album called Return to Forever. And then they started calling the group Return to Forever. But this um, membership of this band was only together for these two recordings. So you have Stanley Clark on bass, and you have Flora Purim on vocal, and you have Erto, Flora's husband, on drums, and Joe Farrell on saxes and Chick on keyboards. What I really like about this piece 
And there, we're only going to play one um, recording of it. But what there are two recordings of it that came out in the same year, 1972. And so one is with this early version of the Chick Corea Jazz Fusion Project. The other was a duet album with Gary Burton. So then it was just acoustic piano and vibes. And so I would really encourage listeners to get both recordings and listen to the ensemble version and then listen to the duo version and the tune works perfectly in both. What I like about the tune in terms of its construction is it starts off um, very peaceful and somewhat conventional, but already by the third bar, we hit our first major seven sharp 11 chord. And then we have this, it's got an AABA form, but when you get in the B section, it just modulates around in really cool ways. You have like a an E seventh sharp nine chord, which is also a very interesting kind of dominant dissonant chord. And you find when you get to the B section that if you're trying to find a tonal center, it's hard to find it because it keeps shifting, but it shifts in a very subtle lyrical way and then finds its way back to the A section again. It's just a beautiful tune. This is a very early version of Jazz Fusion, so there are no synthesizers on this. The interesting, the only electric instrument is Chick Corea's Fender Rhodes electric piano. Hmm. And I, I have the same model in my basement. It's a 73 key version that was um, uh, marketed, I think, in 1968. So I think I got mine in maybe 1970 when I was... Um, just finishing up junior high and so um so yeah he's playing the electric piano on it but it it, he it really has this wonderful bell-like quality and it's a very zen kind of um aura that you get out of it yeah totally and what and one other thing i'd like to say about the saxophone is that my favorite soprano sax players really kind of get in your face with the instrument they don't play it dainty. They don't play it pretty. It's not a Kenny G thing where it sounds like an ob- sounds like an oboe. It's it's raspy. It's sometimes played a little bit sharp. Um, and and I'm thinking of like John Coltrane, Wayne Shorter, and um, and here too. Um, he he plays it in your face. And so the soloing, even though this is a ballad tune and it's very laid back. His soloing is kind of like, you know, I'm getting in your face and you are going to listen to me. Yeah. 
And I really like that. Um, there's great soprano sax from Wayne Shorter on the on the next tune you sent, Joanna's theme from a really beautiful album between uh, Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter, One Plus One. Yeah. Had you heard this album before? Yep, I have it. Okay. It's wonderful album. It came out in the 90s, uh, I think in kind of the, the mid-90s, maybe about 97, something like that. And so a lot of people remember Herbie Hancock from either his early period as, I mean, he broke on the scene as a really young guy. He was maybe like, I don't know, 19 or something playing with Miles. So he was in the Miles group not too long after uh, the kind of blue group. Some people call it, you know, one of the great uh, Miles Davis quartets. Uh, but he was also writing his, he also had his own group. And, uh, and he hooked up with Wayne Shorter in that period, and they've been playing together ever since. Um, so a lot of people remember the period, that period in the 60s. He's doing tunes like Maiden Voyage and One Finger Snap and, and um, Speak Like a Child. And, and he's very much influenced by the, the writing of Gil Evans and, and uh, the players that Miles associated with. So then he moves into the 70s, and he's really front and center, along with Chick Corea and the jazz fusion movement. And he got on the very popular end of that. Uh, a lot of people were listening to, they'd listen to Earth, Wind & Fire, and then they'd listen to Headhunters uh, or other albums that came in that. A lot of people have not kept up with Herbie since then, even though he's been prolific. Um, he uh, did all the arranging for the movie Round Midnight with Dexter Gordon, including uh, just a wonderful arrangement of As Time Goes By. Um, but a, a lot of people haven't kept track with him. And, and it may be that he's been, um, to kind of coin a phrase from one of his albums, Chameleon. He's been a chameleon of different genres. You can listen to him on the recording that, that you're going to play and think, is he a, is he a classical player? Is he, is he playing, is, is this a, a WC tune? Um, or is he a Bill Evans? Is this a Bill Evans cut? Um, because he is influenced by so many people and he digests those influences, but then speaks it in his own voice. So what's really interesting about this recording um, is the history of this piece. And I, and I think all these recordings, it's not only the music, but it's the history that goes around it a bit. So like when we were talking about Jade Visions, knowing about the young life of of Scott LaFaro and how his music's influenced people. Or when we talked about Crystal Silence and, and how Chick Corea kind of took this recording and then took this piece and, and took it in two simultaneously different directions in the same year, the history gives me kind of some peace to go along with the tranquil aspects of the recording. So this one, Joanna Steen, its first presentation shows up, now get ready for this, it shows up in the uh, movie Death Wish. It was written for the movie Death Wish. So for those of you that don't know, Death Wish was a, a 1974 Charles Bronson movie. And Charles Bronson was, uh, I think, before that, a very 
very interesting actor and he shows up in uh the movie the great escape uh he shows up in a classic twilight zone episode about a dystopian uh post-apocalyptic world where there's one russian and one american left neither of them speak the same language and it's him and elizabeth montgomery um so but by the time he gets into this genre of movies i think he's kind of phoning it in so he did like five of these movies they're all they're all vigilante movies it's about a guy and someone dies close to him and as a result of thug activity and so he takes it on himself to have this violent rampage on the thugs and so joanna's theme is a piece that shows up in that movie and its original scoring to be honest didn't grab me at all it was very mid 1970s a lot of strings with kind of electric music under it um not very interesting and i i had you know i hadn't even given that tune a second thought after i I didn't go to that movie, but I did have the soundtrack for it. I was like, yeah, whatever. So, so then this album comes out, One Plus One, in 1997. And it's just Herbie on acoustic piano and uh, Wayne Shorter, only on soprano saxophone. There's no tenor saxophone on this. They're mostly ballads. They're very interesting tunes. Wayne wrote several of them. Herbie wrote several of them. And this tune, Joanna's theme, it is so beautiful, it'll make you cry. And part of it is harmonically um again the harmonics of this tune could be claire de lune it could be rachmaninoff and uh it's played completely rubato the introduction by herbie uh is could be enough of a tune just by itself yeah and then wayne comes in with a melody and he plays it very kind of in your face it's kind of brittle toward the end of the tune there's a shriek at the end of the tune where he goes up to this tune this note in the altissimo range uh, which is you know kind of outside of the regular fingering range of a woodwind instrument uh and he he nails this note sharp but i think it needed to be sharp it, it's only like it's like this end of the tune that note if that note doesn't make you cry, I'm not sure music can make you cry. beautiful beautiful tune and i agree with you that the whole album is really a fascinating just spin on i don't even know if spin's the right word but it's just a it's one of those uh kind of quintessential duo albums where you know nobody's done that before yeah yeah it's just amazing so 
and and all these tunes I've loved so much that that I do them with my with my band comrades. So when we do uh, we do a show of Bill Evans' work, and it's called June twenty fifth, nineteen sixty one, because that's the last uh, that's the last presentation of that band with LaFaro, and so we get to play Jade Visions, and we do a, a Chicoria show, so we get to play uh, Crystal Silence, and then and then Dick and I. Um, do a lot of duos and when we do duos we play this and it and we've done a herbie hancock show but the only tune from this album we've done is a joanna's theme but some point in the future when we rise again from where we exist now um, dick and i are going to do a show of the material from this album and it'll just be soprano sax and piano and hopefully we'll get more people to know this album um, than maybe do right now so the next tune uh, features Dick, right? Yeah, the next tune features Dick. I hope it doesn't seem too um, uh, self-involved to bring up a couple of pieces that I've written, but but they give me they give me some peace uh, for different reasons. So the next piece is a piece I wrote called "Coming Late to Rock Modernoff." Um, I wrote it because Dick had written a poem called Coming Late to Rock Modernoff. And it's also the title of a collection of his poetry called Coming Late to Rock Modernoff. And it had come out, you know, a few years earlier. And and he received a Minnesota Book Award in poetry for that book. And I've always liked his writing and and when I read this poem about um, it's about someone listening to Rock Modernoff. And how the how the the author of the poem starts crying when he listens to the adagio from Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony in E Minor. narrator um, ruminates over the life of, of Rachmaninoff and how after his first symphony, he was kind of a rock star for his, his piano compositions, and then his first symphony, symphony bombed. And so he wasn't a rock star anymore. And he thought he was, he was done and didn't write and went into a deep depression. And it was only uh, when he came out of that and wrote his second symphony that he became a rock star again, and this is a symphony that most people know. And the Adagio is probably the most well-known or well-recognized um, movement of his works. So, so I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, wouldn't it be interesting to write an arrangement of of that Adagio to fit his poem? And so then, I, so then I started listening to the adagio, and it, it's fairly long. And so, it clearly wasn't—it wasn't, wasn't going to work to just do it from start to finish. And so I, I listened to it and spent a bit of time listening to it, and came up with an arrangement where I start with kind of uh, a a, um, a kind of um, conversation that happens in the middle of the movement between different instruments. 
or one of them will go and then another one will do something similar and it kind of goes back and forth within different voices and so I, I used that as a way to start it kind of working under Dick's palm Sergey, I'm 58 and I've learned to love it's middle age I know when we recognize the power we never had a post-romantic flurry of notes and emotion is declining and so I'm driving past the Kmart, the older part of the new strip development, Sergey. Some holiday or other, lights screaming in a sky, pennants at a car lot calling. A lot of people know that I'm a big fan of unusual meters, and I, I couldn't quite leave this alone, so it's in 11.4. But the way it presents, it kind of feels like a waltz. It kind of feels like a 3-3-3-2. Three, three, three so it kind of feels like three four three four three four two four, and then because there isn't any drums or bass, it's kind of subtle, but there's clearly something that's lilting a little bit in it, which creates the impression that maybe it's a little bit roboto, but it actually isn't. And so, um, and so then we we uh, practiced it and performed it, and then we recorded it together, in um, on the CD, Solitude. Uh, poetry and jazz. And so he reads um, a couple of poems in that, in that recording. And, uh, and so this is just um, me on the piano and Richard on the soprano sax. So a little bit like, um, I was probably a little bit influenced by Joanna's theme to kind of conceive of presenting the tune this way with just saxophone, piano and poetry. Speaking of odd meters, that's just the case with Tango para Maria Luisa because it's like uh, you you add a little beat in there to kind of trip people up, which I love. Right, and so the the history on that one um, is um, I don't come from a real musical family. I was the only uh, professional musician in my birth family. Uh, my my mom and dad had some instruments around from when they were kids, but, um, and my brothers played instruments a little bit, but none of that really advanced uh, after kind of elementary school, junior high school years. And I was the only one who went further with it. Um, I'm the youngest in my family and my oldest brothers were straight A students and I was an A minus student. So I actually felt like kind of a moron because I couldn't keep up with them. And, um, and my, my dad kind of treated me that way a little bit as well. Um, so music was one thing. I seemed to have a little more aptitude than my brothers. And so I think I threw more energy into that. There was one other person in my extended family who was a professional musician, and that was my aunt, Mary Lou. Um, she lived in Iowa. I come from a very small family, so my dad had no siblings. 
and my mom had one sister. So I just had one aunt and uncle and five cousins total. Um, and I'm very close to the cousin of my same age, Patty, because uh, she was kind of like a sister. When we would go down to Iowa City, my uh, Aunt Mary Lou would be teaching piano lessons. And I loved how she taught and how she played. And so when the other kids would go outside and play, I sometimes did as well. But uh, a lot of times I would stay inside in the other room and just ghost listen to my aunt teaching her students. And she was she's a really good, legit player. She wasn't a jazzer. But, um, you know, at that time, all I was doing was playing legit music, too. And so I just loved hearing her play. They had this wonderful grand piano in their house, and we had an old beat-up upright in mine. And so whenever I could hear her play the good piano, it was like a real treat. And so we were always very connected over the years. When I would go down and play at the Iowa Jazz Festival, I would go out and have lunch with her. So she started to decline in 2005. Um, she was on kidney dialysis and made the decision to stop doing that. And so she knew her time was short. And um, I went down, I drove my mom down to visit her and, and we had a really nice conversation. And, and she said to me, you know, I, I know what's going to happen and I want you to play at my funeral. And uh, my first response is, well, we don't have to talk about that. And she goes, no, we need to talk about that because uh, I've always loved your playing. And I said, I've always loved your playing too. She says, I don't understand your playing, but I love it. And I'd like you to play something. And I said, well, you, well, would you like me to play something classical? And she said, no, I'd, I'd like you to play what you play. Um, you don't need to, to kind of learn something um, that you don't do so much anymore. And so uh, I knew that was probably the last time I was going to see her. And so I'm driving back, and my mom stayed down longer, so I drove back by myself. So I'm somewhere in northern Iowa, maybe by Charles City or something like that. And this tango starts coming in my head. And it's like, okay, this is kind of interesting. And, and music doesn't really appear to me that way. It's usually I'm sitting at the piano and I'm trying something out and I don't like it, but I like a little bit. And then I play around with it, sometimes for a little bit, sometimes for a lot. So to have something kind of come into my head um, while driving the car was unusual. It had a little bit to do with that I'd been listening to some tango music by Doug Little um, on the car stereo. But um, this, so it was maybe influenced a little bit by that, but it, it definitely wasn't what he was playing. It, it already was in 9-4 in my head, which was kind of odd, because usually a tango would be in 4, and this tango is kind of a combination of 4 and 5, so it has an extra beat sitting in every, every, every repetition. I was nervous about it enough that I would forget it, that I... Um, I pulled over and wrote some of it out and then uh, got home, played it on the piano, and it was, it was done.
So I, I didn't, I, I maybe shaped a little bit of it, but not that much. And so, um, uh, because it's a tango, I, uh, and I, I, I used to speak Spanish fluently. My Spanish is, is not so fluent right now, but I know enough to translate. And so I decided since it was a tango that I would actually, uh, put the title in Spanish. So the Spanish, um, version of, of Mary Louise would be Maria Luisa. And so it's called Tango Para Maria Luisa. Um, and it's one of the pieces, um, it gave me a lot of peace to play this um, at Mary Lou's funeral. And uh, whenever I play this, I think of her. And I don't think of her in a sad way. I think of, of all the students she taught and the influence that she had in me and that um, and that we had this close bond, uh, even though we didn't, you know, she was not my mom. Um, and the, but the other thing about this piece is whenever we play it, um, it puts people in a really good place. Um, my wife, Carol, is a classical flute player. We play church services now and then. We've played this piece at St. Albert the Great for its mass. And people will come up afterwards and just say, what was that piece? It it just made me, it just made me so happy to hear it. Uh, and I get that from audience as well. When we perform it, uh, people will say, all this stuff was cool, but what was that tango piece and what time signature was it in? <laughs> and so uh, we recorded it on our most recent CD, uh, which has got kind of a weird name. It's Alice in Stonehenge and Other Acoustic Electric Adventures. It's, it's a two CD set where one CD is, is acoustic music and the other is um, electric fusion music. So this one is on the acoustic side. Um, we did add some strings to it, but otherwise it's, it's straight acoustic. events but we do occasionally and and I've had experienced tango dancers hear this tune and jump up from their seats and start dancing to it and I'm, I'm sure they don't know that it's a nine but you definitely can find one in this because there's a very um, a, a repetition in the bass um, you could call it ostinato if we're talking about classical music but it's this repeating figure and you you don't have to know you don't have to count it out to know where one is and it's that and, and the drumming on this by Dean White and the bass playing by uh, Greg Stinson it, it's they're the metronome for this piece and because of that it's it's quite easy to follow and it allows in the improvisational sections for both Dick and me to really almost play um, regardless of the meter. Like when I'm playing my solo on this, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of getting out there, but I always know where one is. And so I'm not counting and I'm kind of noodling away. And then maybe I'll stop for a moment and go, oh yeah, there they are. And then I, I come back in. And that's a really fun improvisational style where you're almost, um, and you're almost 
uh, oblivious to the um, the bar structure of the tune. It's a really fun way to solo. This music um, gives people some peace. I mean, this is a this is a tough time for all of us. Uh, people are losing jobs. People are getting sick. People are dying. Other people's jobs are tenuous. Um, everywhere you go, um, you have to be mindful of your own personal health and the health of others. And there's a lot of news every day, and it's not getting any better. And you know, to be honest, it's it's not going to get better for a while. And it could be a long while. And so we're in this for a long while. And so having music that can either help people escape or help them formulate their thoughts or help them get rid of some anxieties so that they can get on to the next thing that they need to do, um, that's important. And, and I hope these selections do some, some of those things for people that hear them. Mm-hmm. 